If you would please uh, take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 4. We've been studying um, John's first epistle, and we've noticed that John, um, we've noted that he wrote this epistle to challenge false teachers and their false teachings, but also to help true believers identify who are false teachers and what are false teachings. John gives three tests and then he fleshes them out uh, several times. Uh, the test of obedience, this is the moral test. The test of love, which is the social test. And the test of belief, which is the doctrinal test. We're in the second round, if you wish, of elaboration, of expansion that John does on each of these tests. And it is the expanding on the third test that we will look at today. But unlike what, was, what we've looked at previously, which people might argue you could look at without any historical context. I disagree, but let's, let's go with that. When we come to chapter 4, I think it is critical that we understand the historical context um, behind which or within which John is writing. Look at the first three verses of 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is not does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which we have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. I think one thing that would help us here, that will help us here in 1 John 4, is to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think the situations are quite similar, that Paul is writing to people and John is writing to people who live in a world in which the New Testament, I think, is on the verge of being completed, but it's not completed. And so you have a lot of people going around claiming to be inspired by God, claiming to have new information, when in fact they are false teachers. Let me read you what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. Now about spiritual gifts, and this is a side note, we've looked at this before, but I think he's not speaking of gifts, he's speaking of those who claim to be spiritual. So about spiritual persons, I do not want you to be ignorant you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now on the face of it, reading 1 Corinthians 12 and here in 1 John 4, we might have a rather simplistic understanding of what is being said, that all a person has to do is say Jesus has come in the flesh or Jesus is Lord and they must be believers. They can only do this by the power of the Spirit. But in both situations, the one in Corinth and the one to which John, uh, in which John addresses his letter, we find that there are supernatural or seemingly supernatural things that are taking place. And there are people who are saying, based on these things, whether prophesying, First Corinthians speaking in tongues, that they have the Spirit of God. And 
I mean, if somebody says, this is, I have a word from the Lord, many people are inclined to believe that. And certainly in the first century, uh, before scripture is complete, uh, people don't have something by which to judge whether or not what is being said is true. For the Corinthians, it was a matter of speaking in tongues. I have the tongue, I speak the heavenly language. That's why he begins chapter 13 with, I speak with the tongue of men and of angels. Some of the Corinthians said that they were actually speaking angelic languages. One of the problems the Corinthians face and John's readers face, I think we may as well, though we may not recognize it, is that we tend to identify the supernatural with the divine. If something supernatural happens, we assume it must be from God. And that is a very dangerous assumption. John seeks to correct this. He seeks to inform his readers and educate them in the matter. It's interesting, it's not so much the character of what they say, the content is important, but the origin. You see, there are supernatural beings out there which are diabolical, which are demonic. So if somebody does something rather amazing and spectacular, we shouldn't assume, well, that, that must be from God. That Otherwise, he or she would not be able to do that. With regard to false prophets and false teachers, Jesus pointed to the moral test. That is, the morality of these people, their obedience and their love. In the Sermon on the Mount, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. This, for Jesus, is the test. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. It is John who adds a a third test. It isn't just their obedience and their love, which we find absent among the false prophets and the false teachers. It is, in fact, their doctrine. Moses had to deal with this way back in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 13, he says something, I think it's fascinating. It's the first five verses. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, makes a prediction. And if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place. In other words, this person says this is going to happen and it happens. And he says... Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. 
keep in mind, someone comes along and says, I've had a dream or I've had a vision or here's a prophecy and it happens. We might be tempted to say, well, this, this, it's, it's got to be from God. I mean, how else could this person do this? Well, John says, and Moses says, if they say something that is false, let's worship other gods. Well, I don't care if the prophecy came true. They, in fact, Moses says, must be put to death. You should not obey them. So the issue is not whether or not they can predict the future. The issue is obedience versus disobedience. Moses calls it rebellion when one disobeys God. Before we get into the text, if you look at verse number two, it begins, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. And then if you look at verse number six, the second part of it, this is how you recognize the spirit of truth. So this, John is going to educate us in this matter. There are two sections here. The first we've just read, verses one to three, the content of the teaching, and then Interestingly enough, in verses 4 through 6, the character of the audience, which I wouldn't think would be that big of a deal, but John does, so let's look at it. Verse number 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. You know, Earlier in his letter, John has told his readers to believe and to love. Chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. But we are not to believe or to love uncritically. The famous uh, advice from Norman Vincent Peale, you know, he said his example was every morning when he woke up, he would sit up in bed and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, John would say that's not sufficient. What, in fact, is it that you believe? As Christians, we are not simply to be people who are trusting. We are to be people who believe what is right. Because John will tell us, do not believe every spirit. And he also tells us, do not love the world or anything in the world. Our believing and our loving is not to be indiscriminate. Faith does not equal naivete. Credulity. We are to be careful what it is that we believe. Let's start with the question, what is a prophet? A prophet is a mouthpiece for a spirit, something that is unseen. Um, True prophets are the mouthpiece of the spirit of truth. We hear from John. False prophets are the mouthpiece of the spirit of error. So just because someone is a prophet doesn't mean that they're a good guy or a good woman. This origin of their prophecy is what is critical. Before we trust what the prophet has to say, we have to test the spirit who is behind them speaking. Their origin is what matters. Paul told the Thessalonians this in what we think is probably his first epistle that is written in the New Testament. Test everything, he says. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Why must we test the spirits? You will notice, by the way, it is a command that John gives. Well, it is because the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, has come into the world. As we see in, 
and I read to you from Matthew 5, from the Sermon on the Mount, watch out for false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And then I think this is something that Zib read to us earlier, um, some Sundays back from Mark chapter 13, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. Be on your guard, I have told you everything ahead of time. And then Paul's amazing words to the Ephesian elders. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So why do you have to test the spirits? Well, the reality is there is that which is against Christ, that which is antichrist. There is the destructive nature of prophets. They're seen as wolves who will destroy the flock. They're also deceptive. And sometimes they come from the church herself. So there's a need for discernment. We need to have discernment. We need to recognize that as fallen human beings, far too often we are gullible. We have a naive readiness to credit messages or messengers, teachers, who claim to come from God. I don't think that most people would admit to being gullible. But I think we need to recognize that we are fallen beings and we are more easily deceived than we might imagine. So we should not, we need to be careful that we're not, well, let's you know, live and let live. Let's be tolerant toward anyone's teachings. There are those things which are against Christ. There are those things which claim to be Christ, but are not. There are those things which are destructive, those which are deceptive and seek to destroy the church. We live in the age of suspicion. So you'd think we'd be better at this. You know, in the 19th and the early 20th century, we have Marx who tells us it's all about money. We have Freud who tells us it's all about sex. We have Nietzsche who says it's all about power. You'd think we would be better at being discerning. But this isn't simply a matter of the intellect. It is a matter of the spirit. We must avoid the two extremes. On the one extreme, we will believe anything that anybody says. On the other extreme is we will not believe anything that anybody says. We are to discern and we are to test the spirits. So the command is given in verse number one to test the spirits and the need to test the spirits. But now in verse number two, how do you test them? It is the way to do so. Verse two, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I find this to be the most difficult part of the text that we're looking at today because it seems to imply that all a person has to do is to say, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ is from God because there are many cults who in fact make that claim. They, they agree with that. They assent with this. But in fact, they are false teachers with false teaching. We know better if we've read the rest of the New Testament 
there are those who acknowledge Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. But they are not believers. They are not God's people. In Mark chapter 1, in a synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath, a demon cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, that would seem to fit what John tells us to do here, but this is a demon saying it. Elsewhere in Mark, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Chapter 5, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High? And then there's the wonderful story in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they're exorcists, that's what they do for a living, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. In other words, the exorcists don't actually believe in Jesus, but they use his name. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Demons know who Jesus is. So it's not simply enough for someone to say, yes, I acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. Um, James, a famous passage, James 2.19, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. They tremble. By the way, to affirm one's belief in God is nothing special. I mean, we have the famous Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Most people don't know what comes after that, which is critical. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. See, this is what distinguishes a believer and a demon. They may both say, we believe that Jesus is God, come in the flesh. But demons do not love. They do not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. So saying that you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh is not sufficient, apparently. So what does John mean? What is he trying to tell us here? I would suggest that it is much more than a mere acknowledging of who Jesus is. The incarnation is the critical issue here. If you remember, it's one of the two foundational points at the beginning. Um, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with God and has appeared to us. In John's situation, you have false teachers who deny that Jesus is God. Yet, there was a guy named Jesus, he's from Nazareth, but he is not God in the flesh. He is not the incarnate God. But the Spirit of God, through through whom the incarnation took place, is one who bears witness to that. Just to remind you, we've just gone through the Christmas season, In the passage, Matthew 1, regarding Joseph, 
After he had considered this, he was considered divorcing Mary quietly. Didn't want, he loved her. He didn't want to make her a public scandal. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. When Gabriel appeared to Mary, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It is by the Spirit that Mary became pregnant with the Son of God. And the child is born, and as he grows, it is by the Spirit that he is guided. We see the Spirit coming on him him as a dove at his baptism. The Spirit then leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. And then he returns. And as Jesus goes about his earthly ministry, it is the Spirit who empowers him. Jesus told his disciples the night before his death, When the Counselor, that is the Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Spirit of God tells everyone who will listen that Jesus is God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He is the one that God has sent into the world. This is how you know that it is the Spirit of truth. What are the implications? If Jesus is God in the flesh, then we are to obey him, test number one, and we are to love, test number two. But the false teachers neither obey nor do they love. Look at verse number three. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. It seems fairly straightforward. Anyone who denies that Jesus is God has the spirit of the Antichrist. By the way, we heard this in chapter 2. This is a sort of a a repetition, but also a fleshing it out. Dear children, this is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Who is the liar? He is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. It's interesting when you compare the two passages. I just read from chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, and now chapter 4. In the first one, the emphasis is on the Father. That is, if you believe, you have the Father. If you deny, you don't have the Father. Here in chapter 4, the emphasis is on the Spirit, that you have the Spirit of God. But in both cases, it is the Son who is central. What we have basically is a Trinitarian passage in both places. We have the Son, the Father, and the Spirit are mentioned. The second part, the character of the audience. It's interesting that John begins by talking about the teachers and now he talks about the people who listen to them. You'll notice, as we read it, that each verse begins with a personal pronoun. And in Greek they are emphatic. You, verse number four. Verse five, they. And then verse number six, we. Verse four, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. 
because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John's readers are marked by two realities. First of all, they are from God. Secondly, they have overcome the false teachers. Both of these, by the way, we've seen earlier. In chapter 2, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then again in verse number 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. I think in the earlier passages, the issue was that of morality. That is, that the young men had stood firm in their convictions, in their obedience, in their love. They were standing firm against the evil one. But here, I think the issue is that of intellect. That is to say, the false teachers have not deceived them. They have not deceived them. And why is that? Because the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Verse 5. They are from the world. They. Okay, so you go from you to they. They are from the world, therefore, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. John now turns to the false teachers. They... The world listens to them because they are false teachers. They are from the world. They have the viewpoint of the world. People in the world will listen to someone who is from the world. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I've been struck for decades now, how that you can say something that is so off the wall in, in, in spiritual or religious terms, and people will be willing to to believe it. But then if you tell them what scripture says, they're like, um, well, John tells us, they're of the world. They have the viewpoint of the world. And so when you save something from the world, they will believe it. When you say that Jesus is not God, yeah, people are willing to accept that. The contrast is verse number six. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. At first glance, first reading this, my thought is, John sounds so arrogant. We're right. And the people who say we're right, they're the good guys. It sounds quite arrogant, to be honest. If you don't listen to us, you don't belong to God. Because we are right. And if you don't agree with us, then you're wrong. But I would argue, in fact, that he's not being arrogant for at least two reasons. First of all, you'll notice that John doesn't say I, me. It's we and us. He's speaking of the apostles. He's not a solitary, a single witness. I'm right and everybody else could be wrong. He stands with the apostles. They were called by the Lord Jesus to be his representatives, to be his messengers. John did not choose this. The other apostles did not choose to be apostles. They, in fact, were called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus. Had they chosen to be apostles, had they chosen to say, I am an apostle, I guess, hey, I'm going to be an apostle, then that would, in fact, be quite arrogant. It had been very presumptuous. By the way, there are some 
today in the church who claim to be apostles. Yeah, I don't think you get that. You're not allowed to do that. This is something that Jesus called them and commissioned them to be. But having been chosen, if they would shrink from their duty, then that would, I think, also be presumptuous. Jesus said, you're an apostle. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I want to do that. That's not up to you. So when John says we, he's speaking of himself with the other apostles. Okay. Secondly, I don't think he's being arrogant because he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to the reality of the incarnation. So I've read to you already, and we've done so many times in this series, the letter opens, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John and the other apostles were there. They were eyewitnesses. And their responsibility is, in fact, to testify that Jesus is God in the flesh. And if you reject their testimony, then, in fact, you are a false teacher. You have turned from God. In going through First John, we've seen that John presents three tests regarding the authenticity of one's teachings in order to confirm the believers that they are believing the right thing and these teachings, these teachers over here are false. It's the test of obedience, the test of love, the test of belief. But I want to be careful and I I want to take the time here just to point out that this is a man-made outline to somehow try to make sense of what John is saying. I don't think that John sat down with an outline and said, this is what I'm going to do. He may have. But when I say that there are three parts to the test, I don't want you to think that they are three separate things. They, in fact, all come together. In our text today, in fact, we see all three coming together. Just as we see all three members of the Trinity. As I've said a number of times, we might wish that chapter 4 had actually been in chapter 2, that John had begun with the doctrinal test. Because most people say, how do you know if someone's a Christian? Well, what do they believe? Belief is important. We began our worship today with the Apostles' Creed. That's important. But you know what? There are people who say they believe, but there is no obedience and there is no love. And John would say, that they are probably not believers. One last thing. I sense in John's presentation, if you look at what we studied last week and our text today, um, a balance in his presentation dealing with two types of people within the church. Those who are prone to fearfulness, who really don't have a strong sense that I am a child of God. They, they stand in doubt. They live in doubt. On the other hand, you may have those in the church who are overly confident. I'm a child of God. They're absolutely convinced. They have assurance. Last week, we looked at chapter 3. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our minds at rest in his presence for those who are fearful. Whenever our hearts condemn us, 
God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If our hearts condemn us and say, how, Damon, how can you be a Christian when you have done these things? And not like years and years ago, like now, yesterday, the present. I thought you were a child of God. And yet you don't seem to have the love that a child of God should have. Don't see the obedience that one would expect. A fearful heart may condemn me and say, you're not a believer. But God is greater than our hearts. There are other times when you're just, whether it's emotion or whatever, you're just like, yes, I'm a child of God. And no one can doubt that. Well, John says, if in fact you have that confidence, it's confidence from God. It's a gift of grace. We may be somewhere in the spectrum between this fearfulness and this overconfidence. And in our text today, I think John deals with those who may have that. If you look at the beginning of verse number four, uh, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Yes, we have won. And one might be tempted to have a sense of triumphalism. John's not finished, though. Look at the rest of verse number four. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I'm convinced that every one of us, and I include myself, have the potential to fall into error. Paul warned the Ephesian elders of this. If we do not fall into error, it is not because of our superior intellects. It's not because of our personal obedience. It's because the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And when we doubt or when we are foolishly overconfident, anywhere in between, we should remember it is the grace of God. It's not because of us. It's not because of anything that we have done. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and we can be at rest in his presence. Let's pray together. Our Father, if we would be honest, we do have the potential for gullibility to fall into error, to be seduced by something new, something spectacular. There may be times when we imagine that the gospel needs some spicing up. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. The gospel may begin to sound old, tired. The problem is with us, not with the gospel. May we recognize that whatever we have comes from you. The confidence, the assurance, a knowledge of the truth, these are all because of your grace. But being fallen as we are, 
we have a tendency to drift, perhaps even fall into error. But we do not stand alone. We have our brothers and sisters. Just as John had his fellow apostles, we should say we, we believe, rather than I believe. But more than that, we have the Spirit who lives in us. And he is greater than our foolishness, greater than our callability. More than that, he is greater than the world. That darkness which is in the world, he is greater than that. By your grace, may we always remember this. Thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for those that aren't with us, those that will be traveling for the quarries tomorrow, for Tess on Tuesday, and Tom as well as he comes back to us. Give them safety, we pray. For those that are afflicted, that you would raise them up. Thank you for this first Sunday of a new year. May your spirit guide us in all that we do. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. Once again, we thank you for Ezra and his birthday. What a wonderful gift he is. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.